two Jews in the shtetl. One walks up to the other. Says, Vusmachstu, how you doing? The other one says, Baruch Hashem, thank God. How are you doing? First one says, about the same. The second one says, really, that bad? See, Jews, we say Baruch Hashem, we say thank God. Sometimes when we're doing good, sometimes when we're not doing so good, whatever's happening, Baruch Hashem, thank God. In other words, we're not selective about which moments of reality we attribute to the Creator and which ones we live in denial of. As Jews, we affirm every moment of reality. And until the coming of the Messiah, when we will have a perfect world, um, reality includes moments that are both pleasurable as well as painful, and some that are in between. So if we affirm that every moment is created by our maker, by the creator. That means we affirm that the painful moments, the challenging moments, the dark moments, they also come from him. And being here now has a lot to do with being comfortable with being uncomfortable, with being present with the moments that if we were writing the script, we would have chosen to exclude from our lives. In other words, you can't be selectively mindful. You can't be selectively present in your life. You're either present or you're not. And if you choose to show up when reality is to your liking and not show up when reality is not to your liking, then what I'm telling you is we're actually not showing up at all. What does it mean to be selective about showing up to reality? And why, if I show up for moments that I like, only for the moments that I like, and I won't show up for the moments that I don't like, then I'm not even showing up in the moments that I do like? Well, think about it. If I'm showing up for the moments that I like, showing up means I'm engaged. I'm allowing myself to feel whatever it is that I'm feeling in the moment, not going up here, not retreating. But I have my feelers out. I'm, I'm, I'm judging the whole time. Oh, is, is it getting unpleasant? Uh, am I, is it starting to change? Am I not liking it? Because uh, if it is, I'm, I'm ready to check out. So that's not living in the present. That's called fear. And fear is living in the future. If I'm constantly judging whether or not the moment is to my liking, and I'm ready to check out the moment that it's not to my liking, I'm living in fear, which is living in the future, not living in the present. So the only way that I get to be in the moment that I like is if I'm going to be in every moment when I like or I don't like. 
And that's the first tool, I think, does it say here that we're going to learn techniques, tools? Discover life-changing techniques. Yeah, so the first technique is that we have to show up for our lives for all of it, every moment of it. There's a famous story that's told about one of the Hasidic masters. On his deathbed, he was crying, and his students were gathered around, and they said, Rebbe, why are you crying? And he said, because I'm afraid of judgment. I'm afraid that I will uh, not live up to the uh, judgment that will be made of my life. So the, the students were concerned. They said, Rebbe, you lived a life of perfect purity and piety. Um, how could you fear judgment? And if you're afraid that your life isn't going to pass muster, it doesn't bode very well for the rest of us who we don't, we don't approach your level. I mean, explain to us why are you afraid of judgment? And, uh, and this, this holy man who was, ne who was named Zusha, Reb Zusha, Reb Zusha said, when I come to the heavenly court, I'm not afraid they're going to review my life and then they're going to look at me and they're going to say, Zushia, why weren't you like Abraham, our father? Zushia, why weren't you like Moses, our teacher? I'm concerned they're going to look at my life, and then they're going to look at me, and they're going to say, Zushia, why weren't you like Zushia? Now, what, what does that mean? Each one of us is a soul that was sent to this world to live at a certain time in history, to be born in a certain place, uh, to have a certain story, and, and, and that story brings with it a mission, your mission. Um, you are your mission. Your soul is your mission. Uh, the body is the vehicle within which we accomplish the mission, but basically there's a purpose that you came down here for. Sometimes, in fact, I think it's more helpful. The word soul can sound so metaf metaphysical and, and abstruse that it, it's hard to, to use. In a, in, a, in, a, in a regular conversation, but if we talk about ourselves as, you know, there's me and then there's my mission. There's my purpose, why I came to this world. And it's axiomatic that every single soul, every single mission is unique. Each one of us came at this place, in this time, to live for this amount of years, months, days, seconds. And no one ever did it before, no one's ever going to do it after, and it's unique, it's unique to you. So basically what that means is everybody has a unique life, it's a unique story, and all you have to do, all you're being judged, and I'm not talking about the way others judge us because that's irrelevant, but I'm talking about between you and your maker, the only yardstick, the only criterion of whether or not you accomplish your mission is showing up for your own life. Showing up for your own life. So that they shouldn't ask you, Zusha, why, were, why weren't you like Zusha? Why weren't you yourself? But what happens is we encounter obstacles, we encounter challenges and we learn we learn how to avoid that pain by going up here 
we have this marvelously powerful machine that God gave us called the human brain. And we learn that we can go up here when we don't like it out here. We don't like what's going on around us. We go up here. So, for instance, I'll give you one example how we go up here. When I was talking about a few minutes ago, that if you're not willing to be present all the time, you're, you're selective about when you're being present. In other words, you're living in fear. You're living in fear that there's going to be a painful moment. Or like Roosevelt said, the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? The fear of fear. The fear that I'm going to be uncomfortable. The fear that it's not going to be good. All right. So hold on a second. Where is that happening? In the here and now, where is that taking place? It's not taking place anywhere. By definition, all fear... All fear is cerebral. By cerebral, I mean it's, 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 it's cognitive thinking. It's abstract thinking. As opposed to what? I, I, I suppose I should, should illustrate this to make it more um, accessible. Um, if you're walking through the woods and you see a bear and you have an adrenaline rush and you start running, that's not cerebral. That's not happening up here. In fact, that happens faster than you can think. You're not using words in your mind to narrate to yourself, oh, gee, I'm confronted by a bear. That whole thing kicks in so quickly, so automatically. It's biological. There's no thinking involved. But let's say I'm going camping. No, no. I didn't, I'm not going camping. I'm planning a camping trip a month from now, and I start thinking, well, what'll be if I see a bear? So now I'm up here. Now I'm in my brain. So that's the first way, that's the first direction how we leave the moment, is we put ourselves in an imaginary future. The other way that we leave here and now as we go the other direction, we put ourselves in the recollection of the past. It's not imaginary. I mean, it's based on a true story, you know, like they say in Hollywood, based on a true story. But it's a recollection of the past. It is subjective. And more importantly, it's not happening anywhere in the world. It's not going on anywhere around me. It's, it's in here. So, for instance, I'm driving down the freeway. And I'm not thinking about anything in particular, or so I think. And all of a sudden, you know, the stream of consciousness hits upon some trauma, some old wound, and I start to recall, and I start to relive. And before I know it, I, my throat is tight, and my, 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 my palms are sweaty, and my, my stomach is cold. Now, what's happening there? My body is reacting with dread. I'm having that adrenaline rush, fight or flight. But there's no one to fight, and there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to flee to, because what I'm experiencing at that moment in the car is a recollection of something that might have happened thousands of miles away, years or even decades ago in the past. My body doesn't know the difference. 
physiologically, I'm ready to run from a bear, but there is no bear. There's nowhere to go because it's all happening up here. And meanwhile, while I'm in that recollection of the past, I'm in that, what we call the resentment. Resentment is from the Latin root, sentir, which means to feel, like sentiment is from that same root. A resentment is a re-sentiment. It's not happening now, but I'm feeling it now. And while I'm in that resentment, I call it visiting the museum. Each one of us has a museum. I know that I have a museum, a museum dedicated to my suffering. I'm the curator and the only attendee of this museum. And when I want to feel acute self-pity, I go and I visit the museum. And I relive my suffering. And I got to tell you, it's a very effective museum. Every time I leave, every time I leave, I am absolutely devastated. Why would I go to such a museum? There's not even a gift shop. There's nothing productive about going there. And yet, from time to time, there's that beckoning call. Hey, let's go relive the pain. The only thing is, the pain was once. Whatever the pain was, whether it was physical stimulus or it was emotional stimulus, emotional pain is a real thing. But that's pain. This isn't pain. This is suffering. See, the difference is they say pain is unavoidable. Suffering is inevitable. Or I should flip it. What do you call it? Pain is, what did I say? Pain is unavoidable. Pain is, in, pain is inevitable. Suffering is avoidable. The pain is part of life. Pain is when you encounter unpleasant stimulus. Okay, so nobody has promised a life where they're going to avoid unpleasant stimulus in life. So that's the pain. The suffering, though, is totally avoidable. Why? The suffering is cerebral. Again, it's, 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 it's cognitive thinking. It's when I go up in my brain and I start judging. I start telling a story. When I start telling a story. So for instance, I'm, you know, it's 3 in the morning and I'm half awake and I'm walking across the floor upstairs, you know, with the, the hallway where the bedrooms are, and there's carpeted floor. You're going to see in a second why the floor is carpeted from my story. And you're walking across the carpeted floor, three in the morning, you're half awake, your steps are very heavy, and you're walking past your child's bedroom where your child was playing Lego earlier in the day. You see what's coming, okay. Trigger warning. And you take a big, heavy step on the Lego. Everyone's experienced this? Okay. Um, it's one of the most devastating injuries known to man, stepping on a Lego. And you feel, yeah, you immediately recognize that it's, that it's happened. And, and, and you know that it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt really, really bad. And you just, time slows down. And you feel like it's taking forever. You know? And eventually, within uh, whatever it is, a millisecond, the whole thing uh, happens. And eventually, the pain hits. And you scream, oh, you know, that's, that's pain. And that's just a stimulus response. That's just me reacting to um, stimulus. It's not voluntary. It's not, I don't choose it. Um, it's automatic. It's just, it's, it's, it's a biological thing. 
Um, and it's God-given, you know, because I'm supposed to feel pain so that I avoid continuing to, you know, that when I touch the hot stove, it should hurt so that I don't hold my hand there, right? So all of that is just pain. And, and, and the pain is unavoidable because, like, like, like we say in Yiddish, and the Rebbe used to say this expression, as situt ve shreitmen. If it hurts, you say ow. Okay, it hurts, fine. There's nothing neurotic about saying ow, it's just a fact. It was a painful thing. Um, but now, a second later, I bury my head in my hands and I say, why does stuff like this always happen to me? That's the suffering. Now I'm telling a story. A tragedy. I'm a tragic figure. Not even tragic. Pathetic. It's not tragedy. It's pathos. That's happening up here. That, I'm no longer reacting to the stimulus. I'm no longer reacting to something that happened. Now I'm reacting to the story I'm telling myself. Now, let's stop and let's analyze this. At that moment, once I go up here and I start to talk to myself, I start to t tell myself that story of victimhood, where am I? I'm up here. Now I understand why we do it. You know why we start doing that? Why would, we do, why would we make ourselves feel bad? Are we dumb? Are we crazy? The answer is no. No, we're not. We're not dumb and we're not crazy. Why do we do that? Why, do, why, would, I, why would I do something that hurts me? Why would I inflict more harm? Psychological harm. Why would I torture myself? It's the uh, illusion of control. It's about, it's about control. It's all about control. You ever seen a child get a splinter? A child gets a splinter and they come inside and they're crying and they show you the splinter. And they don't even know what it is. The child's first splinter, it's so funny, they don't even know what a splinter is. You know, they're, they're bewildered by the whole experience. And you explain to them, you know, it's a splinter, which doesn't mean anything because <laughs> they don't know what splinter is. It's a little piece of wood. It got under your skin. Okay. And then what do you do? Oh, we're going to take it out. Don't worry. We're going to get the, 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 the tweezers. And you go to the first aid kit and you get the tweezers. And then you're feeling like a really good parent because you actually found the tweezers. Okay. I'm doing well. I got the tweezers. Okay. And you tell the little four-year-old or five-year-old, okay, come here. And you take. And what happens as you take the tweezers and you get near their finger, what do they start doing? Screaming. Absolutely. Go berserk as if you were going to try to extract the splinter with a chainsaw, right? They are beside themselves, like, Bubala, please, you know me. I'm not going to hurt you. Just let me. And they can't let you do it. They can't let you do it. And then finally, what does every four or five-year-old say? They start bargaining with you. And well, at, first, at first, they pretend it doesn't hurt. No, it's okay. It's better now. It's not bad. You have a splinter. Let's take it out. And then they start bargaining. And they say, let me do it. Let me do it. Okay, fine. You humor them. Go ahead. You do it. And they take the tweezers. And what happens the moment they hold the tweezers? It's that security blanket effect, right? They, they calm down. They're holding the tweezers. Now they're, now they're, now they're calm. And, and, and I've even seen children take the tweezers and start jabbing their finger. It's not 
they're not good. They, I mean, it's just a fact. The five-year-old does not have the eye-hand coordination. They're not going to be able to perform this, um, th this uh, procedure. And all they're really doing is they're just poking a spot that's already sore, and they're just causing more physical pain, but they're relaxed. And then finally you say, come on, give me the tweezers. And you take the tweezers from them, and then you start to get near, ah, and they scream, they lose it again. So what do we see from this? What do we see from this? That a person would rather experience pain and feel some type of control than to experience the loss of control. So as long as I'm holding the tweezers, I'm okay, I'm calm. That's why, for instance, I'm gonna get back to the Lego in a second, but that's why, for instance, people are more afraid of flying than they're afraid of driving. That's ridiculous. Everyone who knows about statistics knows that God forbid, God forbid, God forbid, but the odds of something bad happening in a car are much, much worse than anything ever happening to you in an airplane. And yet, much more people are nervous about flying than they are about driving. Why? It's simple. Because when you're in the airplane, there's a loss of, there's a feeling of a loss of control. When you're in the car, you can be the backseat driver. You have that illusion that if things get really out of hand, I'll grab the wheel, right? And when you're in the plane, you don't have that illusion. You don't, you don't think you're going to rush the cockpit and go, and I'll, let me show you how this is done, okay? No more of this, these bumps over here. Let me fly this thing, okay? So we hate the loss of control. Now let's go back to the Lego. Step on the Lego, okay, fine. I'm experiencing pain, fine. That's what's happening, that's real. There's nothing, there's no judgment in that. It's not, it's not cerebral, I'm not talking to myself right now. It's just, I stepped on the Lego, it hurts, I'm feeling it, I'm saying ow, okay. But what do we do? What do we do? We get afraid Something's happening to me that I'm not controlling. It's happening to me. I don't like that. I don't like, it. I don't like something happening to me. I want to be in control. Okay, how am I going to be in control? I can't undo the fact that I stepped on the Lego. I stepped on the Lego already. So what I do is I go up here. That's where I have control. And here what I'm going to do is instead of feeling the pain of the Lego, which I can't control, I'm going to feel the self-pity, the emotional anguish, the, the resentment, all that good cerebral stuff that I'm generating, all that garbage that I'm making in my brain, because that I do control. Now I got back control. You can't hurt me, I'm hurting myself. It's the same thing we do with fear. Instead of just surrendering to the fact that Every moment is unexpected. I don't know what's going to happen in God's big world the next second. Well, I don't like that. That's a feeling of loss of control. So how am I going to control it? Well, I'll worry about it. Now, I'm causing myself anxiety. I'm causing it. I'm thinking about what could go wrong and making myself sick, but I'm making myself sick. So that's where it starts. 
we go into these resentment and fear meditations, and yes, they are meditations, in order to get back the illusion of control. So the solution is, the solution in order to, and, and let's talk about why it's a problem, or let's reiterate why that's a problem, because if I'm going into the fear, or I'm going into the, the resentment, either the, you know, the past or the future, and I'm meditating there, so that I'm not in the present, I'm not showing up for my own life. Now the question is, Zosia, why weren't you Zosia? Right? Why weren't you present for all the moments of your life? Why are you tuning out? Why are you retreating? Why are you going up here? Okay. And the answer is because the illusion of control, that I want to feel the control. So I want to cause myself to feel whatever it is that I'm feeling. I don't want to feel whatever it is that I'd really be feeling. So instead of feeling whatever the situation is, I want to feel what my mind is making me feel. Even if it's, it, 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 it's misery, even if it's angst, even if it's remorse and resentment and all sorts of toxic stuff, but I'm doing it. So the first solution is the surrender to feeling whatever it is that we are feeling now. The ability to experience discomfort. Now, how are we supposed to do that? There may be other techniques. There may, there may be secular techniques for this, meaning non-faith-based, but I'm a rabbi, so I don't think I'm going to shock you if I tell you that my method is kind of religious, kind of God-centered. Um, how do we show up for the moment? It took me a long time, I'm talking personally, to be able to distinguish between everything being out of control, right? Everything's out of control, it's chaos, everything is crazy, it's all, right? Everything being out of control between that and the recognition that it's just not under my control. So there is a difference. Everything's under control, just not yours. <laughs> And what that means is, there's a God running reality. Everything's under control, just not yours. The most simple formulation I've heard of this concept, it's a deep concept. I mean, in, in the Talmud, the way it's phrased is, Hakil bide shamaim chutz shamaim, which is, everything's in the hands of heaven except for one's awe of heaven. That's how it's formulated by our sages in the Talmud. But the most simple formulation I ever heard of was from a, uh, an old, just a crusty old guy. He was a, a sober alcoholic. He had 40 years recovery, 40 years sober. And he used to, you know, he was very gruff. He was this old uh, sailor, like a Navy guy. And uh, his way of saying it was like this. And this is what he would tell all the newcomers, all the, you know, the, the new alcoholics who came in looking for recovery. 
he would say, if you want to get sober, you've got to be spiritual. And to be spiritual, you've got to follow two rules. There's only two rules of spirituality. Rule number one, there's a God. Rule number two, you are not him. That was it. There's a God, and you are not him. So everything's under control, just not under my control. Once I accept that fact, that what I'm feeling right now from the moment is exactly what I'm supposed to be feeling right now. It's not a mistake. No one's asleep at the wheel. Not, they didn't get the wrong guy. God didn't send somebody else's moment to you on accident. Everything's under control, just not mine. Oh, okay, so now I'm free. I'm free to surrender to reality. I mean, you don't even have to be that spiritual to go for that. I'm free to surrender to reality. How spiritual do you have to be to surrender to reality? I mean, it's just good sense. In fact, in my humble opinion, the best way to describe spirituality is that ability. Exactly that ability, precisely that ability, the ability to surrender to reality. And in fact, I think a lot of misunderstandings about spirituality that go on today are, revolve around a misunderstanding of this concept, where spirituality becomes um, escapism. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, doesn't God prefer spiritual fruits to religious nuts? What's a religious nut? A religious nut is somebody who's using their, has a faith-based theme to their inability to live in the world with other people. That's where you know, self-righteousness comes from. That's where you know, the irresponsibility comes from. That's where, you know, it's it just, it's escapism. And, but, it, but it's religiously themed, so then it becomes, you know, beyond reproach. Oh, don't question it. You know, well, well, I can question it, because if your religion means you don't have to be responsible, you don't have to be an adult, you don't have to play well with others, you don't have to show up, it, I, yeah, I question it. So that's not authentic spirituality. What is authentic spirituality? It's that ability to surrender to reality. But that's where, that's where faith gets a bad name. Somebody once asked me, how do, you, how do you describe faith to an intelligent person? So I said, look, there are two concepts which in contemporary discourse, you know what contemporary discourse means, by the way? Facebook discussions, that's contemporary discourse. So. In contemporary, you're gonna, I'm going to finish the sentence. You're going to see, oh, you're right. I saw that Facebook discussion. I blocked that guy. Um, in contemporary discourse, the way that people discuss faith, they obfuscate the concept of faith with that of fantasy. Faith and fantasy become interchangeable. And then you have these extreme straw man arguments, both sides arguing in favor of fantasy or against fantasy, and it's like, who, who said this is faith? Faith and fantasy are 
mistaken for each other, at least the way that you know, people talk about it, but anyone who understands the true nature of faith and the true nature of fantasy, I suppose, understands that not only can't they be mistaken for each other, but these are as far apart as, as north and south. These are polar opposites. What, but what's, what are they? So it's very simple. Fantasy is an idea that I cling to in order to avoid facing reality. Faith is an idea that I cling to in order to have the courage to face reality. So they're almost the same, except they're opposite. I'll say it again just to make sure it's clear. Fantasy is an idea that I cling to in order to avoid facing reality. Faith is an idea that I cling to in order to have the courage to face reality. So if you're going through life and you're not worrying enough and you start feeling, you know, Jewish guilt that maybe you're not, you know, maybe, maybe it's irresponsible to be so, you know, carefree. Maybe I, you know, I have to be a little bit more neurotic. Um, just ask yourself the question, how do you know it's, it's faith and courage and, 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 and strength and nobility? And how do you know it's just plain old recklessness? Well, there's a very simple litmus test. Are your eyes open or are your eyes closed? If you're in denial, if you're disconnected from what's going on around you, that's escapism, that's fantasy. And by fantasy, by the way, I don't mean delusional fantasy. I mean, I don't mean that I, you know, I, I'm convinced that I'm Napoleon. I don't mean delusional fantasy. What I'm talking about the fantasy of not being reality-based, which the most common ones, the most common forms of, of, of not being reality-based, we mentioned them, is, is going into the imagined future with fear and anxiety, or in my, recollection, my subjective recollection of the past, which, which we call resentment. So either of those two are not reality-based. And if I have faith, and faith I'm defining as the ability to surrender to the fact that everything's under control, just not mine, then I would show up for the present, which is real, and I wouldn't be putting myself, projecting myself mentally into the future or the past. So basically a relationship with God, at least the way Jewish people define it, is an ability to be present. When Moses is at the burning bush, What's the symbolism of the burning bush? Okay, the Jewish people are in slavery, brutal slavery, affliction, torture. Pharaoh is, 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 is killing children. And it, it's, 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 a, it's a, the experience of the Jewish people is, is, is unfathomably inhumane. And, and Moses is away from that. He's, he's, he's now he's at Mount Sinai. He's, he's in the desert. He's away from all that. And he, and he, and he sees the burning bush. And, um, and God speaks to him, tells him about his mission. You're going to take the Jewish people out of, out, of their, out of their affliction. And there's a whole interesting, you know, as far as Moses' experience of that whole thing, first of all, what's the symbolism? What's the symbolism of the bush? So our sages tell us, you know, why didn't God speak from a mighty oak tree or from a, you know, a palm or a cedar? Why did God speak from a bush? And God wanted to show that the, the, the words are, 
I am with him, meaning with the Jewish people, in their affliction. It's actually a, one of King David's lines. I think it's chapter 91 of Psalms. King David wrote uh, lyrics, songs, which we read as, as scriptures, as, as, uh, as psalms, but there were lyrics to songs. Before Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Poetry by writing lyrics to songs, Okay, so there was another Jew called King David. He also wrote good lyrics to songs, and, uh, which we read as poetry. And he wrote this verse, I, that, that, that God proclaims, I am with the Jewish people in their affliction, in their pain, in their pain. Um, I mean, we all know the Yiddish word. We all, we all, we all know about tzuras, right? Tzuras, pain, pain. I'm with them in their tzuras, in their pain. So it's an interesting thing. God says, I'm with you in your pain. I'm with you in your pain. Is that just like compassion, empathy? Like, don't worry, you're not alone. I mean, that's part of it. You're not alone. I'm, I'm here with you. Or is there something deeper as well? I'll tell you another time. I'll tell you another time God spoke to one of, the, one, of the, one of the patriarchs, one of our fathers. It was when Jacob discovered Joseph is still alive and he goes down to Egypt. He goes down to live in Egypt. That's how the whole slavery started. Jacob had to go down to Egypt to meet Joseph and then at first everything was good and then it got not so good and became slavery. So when Jacob's going down to Egypt, Hashem speaks to him, he says to him, Altira Yankiv, do not be afraid, Jacob. Do not fear, Jacob, because I'm with you. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I'm with you. Rashi, who is the preeminent common commentary on the, uh, on, on the scripture, he mentions there, why did God speak to Jacob this way? It says, because he was pained. The word there's meitzad. He was pained, like that word tzuras, or he was pained, he was aggrieved, he was uncomfortable. I mean, that's a mild way to put it, it's an understatement, but he was, he was in pain. So God said, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Let me ask you a question. Why does Rashi say, God told Jacob, don't be afraid, because he was in pain? Tell someone, don't be afraid, if they're afraid. Tell them, don't be in pain, if they're in pain. You want to know why? You can't tell someone, don't be in pain. Pain isn't a choice. Pain isn't a choice. It's an automatic response. You step on the Lego, and it hurts. And by the way, it doesn't have to be physical stimulus. Somebody that you love calls you a terrible name. They didn't touch you. They just said a word. And it breaks your heart. It hurts. That's emotional pain. That's pain. And you can't tell somebody, don't be in pain. It's involuntary. I didn't choose pain. Pain is a stimulus response. To the contrary, the more present I am in reality, the more I feel whatever the pain is. Some wounds subside in a few minutes. Some wounds 
They hurt for years. Some wounds hurt for a lifetime. But that's pain, and I don't choose it. I didn't, I didn't bring it upon myself. So you can't tell somebody, don't, don't be in pain. I don't choose to be in pain. I can't choose not to be in pain. But what can you tell somebody? Don't be afraid. Cut it out. Cut that out. Don't be afraid of the pain. The pain I didn't choose. The pain is happening to me. It's real. The fear? The fear is my meditation. The fear is when I go up here and I think about the pain. The pain that I don't want to have. The pain that I'm indignant that I once had. Indignant about once having had. So the fear... The fear is generated by my meditation, my fear meditation. That, I can be told, cut it out. Stop, feel, stop feeling the fear. That's what God's telling Moses of the burning bush. Same message. I'm with them in their pain. So it doesn't just mean God is compassionate. He's with you. He's next to you. He's holding your hand. Okay, all that's true, but it's even deeper than that. God is saying like this, I'm with you in your pain, not in your suffering. If you're in pain, if it hurts because that's what's really happening in the moment, okay, I'm with you because I'm here in reality. I'm making reality, says God. So if you're feeling it, you're feeling me. It's really happening. Now you can get into all types of questions. Why does God cause pain? Let's not get philosophical right now. Let's just acknowledge the fact that God is saying, if you are in the moment, I'm with you. But once you retreat from the moment, once you go up here, once you get cerebral, once you start thinking, once you start talking and telling your story and making judgments, now you shut me out. I'm not there. That's the one place God can't come to you. That's the one place God gives us free reign. God runs the entire universe, and he says, but if you want to avoid me, start going into your own head. Start going into your own fantasies. Your fears, your resentments. It's interesting that in both of these cases, both these biblical episodes I just described, Moses at the burning bush, Jacob when he's going down to Egypt, and I'll add a third one, which has the same element, Abraham, when he's told about the binding of Isaac. All three of these stories, there's one line of dialogue that's identical. God calls out to, whether it's Moses, or it's Jacob, or it's Abraham, but in all three of these stories, one line, God calls out and he says, Moshe, Yankiv, Avram, says their name. And they all respond the same, with the same line. They all say, Hineni. Hineni. Now, Hineni means, here I am. The simple understanding of here I am means reporting for duty, sir. It's the response of the faithful, of those who are dutiful. Here I am, at your service. And that's true, that's correct, but there's a deeper meaning as well. There's a deeper meaning as well. What's the deeper meaning? All three of these stories are stories about pain. 
and God calls out to each one of these patriarchs, whether it's Abraham or it's Jacob or Moses, and says, hey, I just came to check on you. Where are you? Are you with me? Are you checking out? Is the pain causing you to retreat from reality? Are you going into your own head right now? Are you going into your anxieties, your fears, your worries? Are you going into your resentments, your self-pity, your victimhood? Or are you going to experience this thing that we're experiencing right now? And all three of them respond the same thing. Hineni, I'm right here. I didn't check out on you. I'm right here. That's the deeper meaning of that response. Now think about us. Think about our threshold for being here. We have such a low threshold for reality. Forget about pain. If we get slightly bored, right? If we're sitting at the kitchen table with the family and somebody is less than enthralling, this thing comes right out. Keep talking. I'm listening. It's good. You know, yeah, I heard. I'll repeat back to you the last thing you said. I heard that. Your mother's in the hospital. Keep talking. I heard. I heard. So we, I'm saying as a society, it's, it's, it's endemic today. We have such a low threshold for showing up for reality. The minute it becomes a little bit boring. How much more so if there's a painful moment to show up for? So then what happens? We live our lives selectively. We live our lives basically saying, I will only show up when I'm liking what's happening. I will only be in the moment when I'm getting treated the way that I would treat myself if I were running the world. And my point is, first of all, not that that rarely happens. How often does reality align to exactly the way you would run it if you were running the world? So if you're only going to show up at those times, you're rarely showing up. But my point is not that. My point is, like I said at the beginning, once that's your premise, once you're judging every moment to see if it's up to your criteria, now you're not showing up for anything. You're showing up for nothing. How can you be in an experience, how can you be in the moment when you're evaluating it at the same time, when you're observing yourself having the experience, when you're judging whether or not it's pleasurable enough to, to, to stay engaged? You're not. There's, there's no way. You cannot be in an experience and judge it at the same time. So what happens because of the painful moments that we want to make sure we're ready, we have our escape route, now, not only we don't show up for those moments, we don't show up for our entire lives. So what's the only way to show up for your entire life? And again, I want to repeat what's wrong with not showing up for your life is that you are the only you. <laughs> There's no one else who can do what you do. You're a mission. You're a purpose. You were sent to this world to accomplish something unique. So if you're not going to do what you were meant to do, we're all, reality is losing out on your gift, the gift we were meant to receive from you. And how are we losing out on it? Because you're not showing up for your own life. Why? 
because you're afraid that you're going to be uncomfortable. You're afraid that you're going to be displeased. Well, Jewish faith means that we show up for all kinds of moments. Pleasurable moments, painful moments, boring moments, exhilarating moments, the loud, the quiet, when there's action, when there's tedium. We show up for it all, and we just say, Hineni, here I am. Let me find out what reality will bring at this second. I want to talk about another reality rejection. And I didn't cover it yet because it it's, it's, it's sort of falls between the cracks. It falls between the two main reality rejections. The, the, the fear, which is the meditating on the imagined future, and then the, the resentment, which is meditating on my recollection of the past. Then there's something that's right in between there, and that <coughs> is, that's the present, but it's not being in the present. It's being in the present under protest. It's, I, I'm, I'm focused on the present, but as, as a rejection of the present. So what do you call that? If being fixated on the future is fear, and being fixated on the past is resentment, being fixated on the present, but not in a mindful way, in a, in a, in a protesting way, fixated on the future under, pro, I mean, fixated on the present under protest is, is, is anger. That's called anger. Our sages say, You know what that means? Anyone who gets angry, it's like you worshiped idols. I don't like to tell that to people because it makes them angry. But that's what I say just say. If you get angry, it's like you're worshiping idols. Why? Why do they say it's like worshiping idols? They're just being hyperbolic. They're trying to think of a big sin. Worshiping idols sounds bad. Tell them it's like that. Why is anger like worshiping idols? Very simple. Anger is the belief that this moment is wrong. That it's not supposed to be this way right now. If you believe that reality is wrong, that is idolatry. That is Imagining that there's a power that has uniquely godlike power. And in this case, it's me, myself. I know better than God. I could write the script better than God. I know how this moment is supposed to be. And the way that God is making it right now is all wrong. So that's also not being present. It's a fixation on the present, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a rejecting type of way. It's a reality rejection. There's once a rabbi who spent three years in a capital campaign. He's raising funds to put up a building. And at the end of the three years, they finally, after the fundraising and the permits and the architects and everything, it was his whole preoccupation for three years, they put up the building. And the last thing was they paved the parking lot and then they were gonna have a ribbon cutting ceremony with the mayor, with the 
the big donors. And on the morning of the ribbon-cutting ceremony, there were two little boys from Hebrew school. They ran out into the wet cement playing tag. They were chasing each other. They ran out into the wet cement, and they tracked it up. And this is after three years of the rabbi doing nothing but putting his heart and soul into this building project. And it's hours before the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and he sees these little boys ran through the wet cement and tracked it all up, and the rabbi loses it, and he starts screaming at the kids. And at that moment, one of the boys' fathers pulls up for carpool, and he says, Rabbi, what is this? Screaming at the kids. Didn't you teach us that anybody gets angry? It's like you worshiped idols. The rabbi says, yes, but that was in the abstract. This is in the concrete. So I want to tell you the deepest story that I know. And the reason I, th I, I consider it the deepest story I know is because I know stories that sound deep. Like, like they, they sound very deep. They sound very uh, you know, complex, philosophical. Um, but this one sounds kind of straightforward. And, and every time that I tell the story, seems to get the reaction of like, oh yeah, I got it, yeah, I heard it. And yet I know, at least for myself, that every time I hear the story, again, I think I got it, and then it'll hit me. There's so much more to it. It's deceptively simple. That's why I call it the deepest story that I know. The deepest story that I know is like this. The Baal Shem Tov, who was the father of the Hasidic movement, his chief disciple and successor was the Magid. He was called the Magid. And the Magid had many disciples. Each one of these disciples, virtually all of them, went on to be the fathers of different Hasidic dynasties. Basically, the whole Hasidic world traces itself back to one or another of the, the disciples of, of the Magid. They were a, a veritable all-star team of Hasidic masters. And the story goes like this. They, the students, the disciples of, of, of the Magid were once having a discussion. And the topic of the discussion is, if you were God, if you were God. Now, I'll tell you who the players were in the story. If you know them, you know them. Uh, it adds a little bit to know them, but if you, if you don't know who they are, it, I don't think it detracts majorly from the depth uh, of the story. Um, the first one to speak was Levi Yitzchok of Berdichev. You may have heard of Levi Yitzchok Berdichev. He was the great defender of the Jewish people. He would argue with God on behalf of the Jewish people. He'd always find that silver lining in, in, in every Jew. At any rate, so he was the first to speak. And Levi Yitzchok of Berdichev said, if I were God... I would create the world with more loving kindness, with the attribute that's, the, the attribute that's known as chesed. I would, I would create the world with more loving kindness so that the world should be a kinder, gentler place. The next one to speak was Reb Pinchas of Koritz. Reb Pinchas said, if I were God, I would create the world with more severity with more discipline. It's 
called Gevura in the Kabbalistic parlance. And that way the world would have more justice and those who behave wickedly would not be able to prevail. There would be law and order. And the third one to speak was, was Reb Shneer Zalman who in Chabad we know him as the Alter Rebbe, the old rabbi. He was the, the first Rebbe of Chabad. And the Alter Rebbe, Reb Shneer Zalman, spoke up and he said, and if I were God, I would create the world exactly as God is creating it at this moment. I told you that's my deepest story. Deceptively simple, but what does that what does that mean? If I were God, I would create the world exactly as God is creating it at this moment. Like I told you, this story blows me away every time. But just to share, just 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 a, a kernel of it. Th- think about it like this. If I were God, what does that mean? What does that even mean, if I were God? Not if God were me. That I know what that would look like. If God were me, the world would be exactly the way that I want it to be right now. That, that I know already. If God were me, we'd all eat candy for breakfast. That I know. If I were God... If I were, what does that mean? If I were God, if I were, if I knew everything, if I were all knowing, if I could do anything, if I were all powerful, if I had infinite love, if I were all loving, and I had infinite capacity, infinite possibilities, I could choose anything. I'm God. If I could do all that, you know how the world would come out at this moment? (laughs) Well, look in front of you. Look in front of you. It would come out just like this. It would come out just like this. This moment is the product. This moment is the product of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who has infinite possibilities, infinite potential, and out of all infinite alternate scenarios, the one that this perfect being chose is this one right here that I'm living in right now. And for my part, all I got to do is show up for it. Now, sometimes the perfect choice out of all infinite possibilities, sometimes what that looks like is pain. Sometimes what it looks like is pleasure. Sometimes it looks like action. Sometimes it looks like boredom. But whatever it is right now, if I were God, I'd be making it exactly the same way. 
So yeah, I, 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 everything's under control. Perfectly under control. Perfectly under control. Perfection is in control. And all I have to do, all I have to do from my side, the only faith I have to exercise, I don't have to be a prophet, I don't have to have visions, I don't have to hear God's voice, none of that. That's not, that's not what's required of a Jew to be spiritual. All I have to do is so simple, to show up for this moment as God is creating it right now. Just experience whatever sensations I'm experiencing because of what's happening right now. Without judgment, without retreating into my mind, observing myself, observing, buffering myself from it because I, I, I'm, I'm judging it. Just show up in the moment right now. And then an amazing thing happens. And, and, and without this part of the puzzle, it's not, it's not uniquely Jewish. There are other faith traditions that will also tell you to be mindful, will also tell you not to judge the moment, just be in the moment. But now I want to tell you the part that makes it uniquely Jewish, is once I show up raw, once I show up and allow myself to be naked to reality as God is creating it right now, and I'm not thinking like a chess player, two steps, three steps, four steps ahead, and I'm not in the museum, I'm not going and looking at my, uh, my past trauma. Right here, I'm just right here, I'm feeling whatever it is that's happening right now. What happens next, and this is, this is the, what makes it uniquely Jewish, now I have the power to choose. To choose. Now I have power. The power to choose. I get to choose an action. Fear meditation, imaginary future, resentment meditation, which is my subjective recollection of the past, that's the illusion of power. I feel powerful. Why? Because I'm distracting myself. So it feels like I'm doing it to myself. But I don't have any real power because I can't really make choices in the future or in the past. I can't choose a behavior in the past because it's done. I can't choose a behavior in the future because it's yet to be. I can only choose a behavior in this second. I get to choose what I'm going to do. So that's what's uniquely Jewish. It's not just about being naked to reality and showing up for it and feeling it. That's the preparation for it. But in order to get to what? In order to get to the power of choice. Living means being able to make choices. Showing up means being able to make choices. Making behavioral decisions. That's where my power comes from. That's how I become partner with God. So in other words, when we're talking about the soul came down to this world for a mission. A mission means what? To have certain experiences? No. That's part of it. But what it really means is the choices, the behaviors, the acts of goodness and kindness that I'm going to perform under the circumstances that God puts me in.
I told you before that the sages say everything's in the hands of heaven except for once all of heaven, which means the way God is running the world, that's totally under his control. It's not, not under my control. I don't have a say. I don't have a say. The way he's running the world, that's his business. Everything's in the hands of heaven, except my awe of heaven. What does that mean, my awe of heaven? Where do I have complete control? Complete control, he stays out of my business. It's only my business. The decision that I make, whether I'm going to live in awe of the creator of all, or I am going to live in constant awe and dread of people, places, and things. So the way he's running the world, I have no say, I have no power, I have no control. My behavioral choices under those conditions, I have 100% control. 100% control, he stays out of it. He lets me, he even lets me fall. The funny thing is, ask yourself, most people, I'm talking about human nature, okay? I'm not making judgment, I'm just saying this is the way by default that we are. Most people, by nature, when they're going through a situation which is challenging, where do they put their energy? In what direction do they expend their energy? Trying to change the situation or trying to change their own choices? I can tell you. I can tell you. Most people live in perpetual frustration, leaking all of their energy into the domain where they are totally powerless. Everyone's fretting about what everyone else ought to do. And the closer you are to that person, the more you know what they ought to do. You know, if only my husband would be like, whatever. If only my child, if only my boss, if only the president, if only the stock market. Okay, that's all your energy is going into that stuff. And then, by contrast, how much of our energy do we put into the one area where we have 100% control and power? How much energy do we put into changing and improving our ability to show up for moments and to make behavioral choices under any condition. Very, very little. Very little, sadly. Very few people do that. Very few people pursue that as a goal in life. Most people will tell you, if you ask them, what would have to change right now for you to have a good life? I promise you the answer to that would be some circumstantial change. What would have to change right now for you to have a good life? They would tell you something that has nothing to do with their own control. Something that somebody else is going to do or something else in reality is going to change. And, 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 and what's absurd about that is, I mean, you can, you can wish for that. You can fantasize about that I mean, if, if you want to live in fantasy. But what, what's absurd about that is, is if you want to have a good life, a really a good life. You know what a good life means? A life that you showed up for. I was at a shiva house one time and I heard somebody remark. Somebody said, ugh, 
That was the word. That was the first word they said. Ach. Ach, I remember. Ach. He had such a bad life. And I said, excuse me, because I knew the guy who had passed away. I said, excuse me, he had a bad life? What, what, what do you mean? So this person said, well, he had so much adversity, so much loss, so much trouble. I said, I would not call that a bad life. He had a difficult life. He didn't have a bad. You know what a bad is a, is a, is a judgment. You know what a bad life would be? A bad life would be he had tons of potential, tons of resources, but he chose to do nothing, to love nobody, to have no contribution in this world. He sat on the couch, and then he died. That, that would be a bad life. But the thing is, the way this person and the way most of us define a good life or a bad life is the same way we define a good moment or a bad moment. What do we call a good moment? It's so ridiculous. The way we define a good moment has nothing to do with anything we have any power over. The way we define a good moment is God happens to be getting it right at this moment. He happens to be doing it the way we would do it if we were in control. Which is, by the way, why the whole concept of happiness is so un-Jewish. The word happiness itself comes from the word happen. It's, it's, it's random. It just happens. You just, it's, it's, it's luck. You know what kind of victimhood that is? That means you get up in the morning, you leave the house, and you don't even know whether or not you're going to have a good day. Until it happens. Then you find out if people are being nice to you or they're not nice to you. Or you find out how the market does. And if it doesn't go well, it's a mishap. Because after all, it's all happenstance, right? So, the whole notion, the whole notion of a good moment happens has nothing to do with Everything God does is perfectly correct. He's getting it right all the time. That's not what's good or bad. You want to talk about what's a bad moment? You know, if, personally, what's my low light film? You know, what, what, after I'm getting judged and they, you know, I go through you know, the burning fire of purgatory. You know what that is? The fire of purgatory? It's not a physical fire. It's an emotional fire. You know what it is? The fire of shame. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to watch my life. What are going to be the moments that cause me the most anguish? The low light film. The bad moments. Not going to be when I experience pain or loss or adversity, especially if I handle it like a champ. What's going to cause me anguish are the stupid things I did when I wasted time, when I, when I failed to, 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 to act, when, 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 I, I, when I, I, I missed out on an experience because I was too busy in my head judging the experience. Or That's my low light. That's a bad moment. So a good moment isn't, has nothing to do with what's happening. There are good moments that are painful and good moments that are pleasurable. A good moment has to do with what I'm doing, the choices I'm making. That's a good moment. And the same thing with a good life. A good life doesn't mean a life that's absence from pain or adversity or challenge or loss. A good life means a life where the person showed up minute after minute and made choices. Life didn't just happen to them. 
They made choices. They made decisions. They acted within the reality of that moment. That's a good life. And that, every one of us has 100% control over that. Every one of us has 100% control over whether or not we're going to have that kind of good life. I'll tell you one more story, and then uh, I'll let you go uh, on to the next moment of your life. The story is like this. There was a, a Chabad Chosid back in Russia. And um, they put him in a, a work camp in Siberia. And when he was there, one of the other inmates was a professor. You see, during, especially in that time, um, the communists, where they were arresting everybody, but in addition to you know criminals, they would arrest uh, religious people and also intellectuals. That's why that professor was there. He was he was an intellectual. In fact, there's an there's an old joke they used to say in Russia about why does the KGB work in groups of three? Because you have one who knows how to write and one who knows how to read and a third one to keep his eye on the two intellectuals. So they were always suspicious of intellectuals. So there was this professor who was in prison with this chassid. And one day this professor said to this chassid, I noticed that there are men in this prison who are, to my estimation, physically healthy, and they die rapidly not from disease or starvation or from an act of violence, but simply one morning they lose the will to get up off the cot. And then when we come back from our day of slave labor, we find this otherwise healthy young man dead. And I'm, I'm trying to understand why that is. And, and, and the professor happened to mention to this chassid, he said, and I notice you, in, in contrast, that you seem to be very robust, that you always have energy. And in fact, you not only you have a certain joie de vivre, but you, it's, 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 you affect others, you inspire others. And I'm just trying to understand it. And I was wondering if you had any theories on it. So this chassid says to the professor, he says, let me, let me explain something to you, because I thought about this too. The guys in prison with us, these guys are Cossacks. I mean, these are low lives. These are, these are not nice people. Their life, the life of a Cossack, consists of three things. His horse, his rifle, and his bottle of vodka. That's life. Now, when they get sent here to this prison, they lose those three things. They don't have their horse, they don't have their rifle, they don't have their bottle of vodka. But that's life. And now they were sent to a place where they lost life. Well, it's only a matter of time before the body gets the memo from the 
brain that were dead already. And that's what you see when they fail to get up off the cot in the morning, is um, they catch up to the reality that their life has been taken from them. He says, but me, I got to tell you, my life is not so different here than it was back home. Back home, the sun is setting. And you say, oh, I have to daven mincha, I have to pray the afternoon prayer. And you go and pray the afternoon prayer. Okay, that's back home. Over here, it's pretty similar. The sun is setting, same sun. And you think, oh, time to daven mincha, I have to pray the afternoon prayer. Now, I can't go to shul, there is no shul. In fact, I can't even stop working, because if you stop working, they'll shoot you on the spot. But as I'm working, I say the afternoon prayer silently to myself. And, and in fact, I think to myself, wow, in all of the years since God created the earth, nobody, I bet you nobody ever prayed on this exact spot. So you see, my life's pretty much the same here as it was there. They didn't take anything from me. Now, the man did not see his wife and children for 14 years. Okay, he, it, was, it, was, it was not so simple. But his attitude was, my life over there, my life over here, it's the same thing. The sun is going down, and you, you, you pray the afternoon prayer. See, he didn't define his life based on the conditions, based on the treatment, based on how things are happening happy, happening, mishap, happenstance. He defined his life and he defined the moment based on the actions that he was choosing to take. So therefore, a moment that you choose to pray, a moment that you choose to express faith, a moment that you choose to connect, to connect to God, that's a good moment. You spent that moment well. Not because he was in denial that he was in a gulag. Not because he was delusional and pretending that he was back home. He knew he wasn't back home. But what really matters hadn't changed. What really matters, where I have all the power, is showing up for whatever the moment is and making choices. And that hadn't changed. Back home you make choices, over here you make choices. And when you make a choice, that's good. That's a good minute. And then the next moment is a new moment, and you make another choice, and that's a good minute. And then there's another minute, you show up for that one too, and you make another choice, and that's a good minute. And if you do that over and over and over again, minute by minute, you look back and you say, I had a good life. Oh, but you had pain, you had loss, you had adversity. Yeah, that's, that's the scenery. But how did I, what did I do? How did I live my life? Don't ask me what happened to me. Ask me what I did. That's what makes it a good life, and that's what makes it a good minute. You want to uh, learn a technique? Then I'll let you go home. Or you can go wherever you want.
I mean, I don't know if uh, the hotel will let you uh, wander in the lobby, but I'll teach you a technique, and then uh, you can always remember this talk. You can apply it in your life. Here's the technique. The technique is a prayer. The prayer, it's my original prayer. I wrote this prayer, but it's actually it's based on another prayer, which some of you may have heard of. It's not a uniquely Jewish prayer. It's not from another religion, but... Uh, it's a, it's, it's, have people heard of the serenity prayer? Okay, so I base this on the serenity prayer. It's my shortened version of the serenity prayer. So the serenity prayer goes like this. It goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay, that's the serenity prayer. I wrote a shortened version of the serenity prayer because that prayer is too long. Because if, let's say, I'm reacting to the way God is running the world, and I'm you know, trying to take over control, or that illusion of control. Um, by the time I uttered that whole prayer, you know, I could cause a lot of damage already. So I wrote a shortened version of the prayer. And I say it in Hebrew. That's how I pray. And I'll tell it to you in Hebrew, and then afterwards I'll translate it for you in English. How does that sound? Sounds good? Okay. So here is my shortened, it's called the Kitsur, the abridged, Kitsur in Hebrew, the shortened version of the serenity prayer in Hebrew by me. You ready? Okay, it goes like this. <sighs> okay, that is the shortened version. <laughs> now that was, should I translate it into English? <laughs> Actually, it has a word in Yiddish, it's called a krechts. A krechts. A krecht is a sigh. And, but a, no, a kvetch is the opposite. See, a kvetch is... You remember when, back in the 70s, when they used to have those station wagons with the rear facing way back? So, yeah, I wish they had those today, I'll tell you that. When my parents used to take us on road trips, they'd put us all on the way back. We'd fight to go to the way back. We loved the way back. There's the back and then the way back. It was rear-facing. And it had a window. Remember that? They just, at that back window, we're going down the highway, and if we'd start to kvetch, eh, eh, I don't like this, eh, he hit me, eh. They would roll down that window, and all the kvetching would fly out the back window, out onto the highway, and it was quiet for them up there. Now, they don't have that. I have a 12-passenger van. And the kid could be four rows back, and all the fetching goes forward. It goes right up into my ear. So actually, I'm, I'm hoping that they will bring back the rear-facing way back of the station wagon. But a fetch, imagine that. That's when, when you go to God and you say, eh, you're messing it up. Eh, it's not what I want. Eh, I could do better. Eh, okay. A krechts is the opposite. A krechts is like this. Wow, this is painful. This is uncomfortable. Uh, this is not what I asked for. Uh, this is not what I thought I could handle. And you start to tighten up, and you're like, oh, I'm going to control it. Oh, I'm going to run away from it. Oh. And then you just, oh. you know, the cracks is just the, the releasing it and admitting, you know, it's let go and let God. Or another way of saying that, which I like better, is let go or get dragged. Okay, so you want to do it, do it together? We'll do the, the shortened version of Serenity Prayer all together, communally? Okay, and the main thing is, the most important thing is of the prayer is the inhale. Because the inhale is like, you have to fill up your entire lungs because that's like 
the control, you try to hold it, and then there comes a point where you can't hold it anymore. You've got to let it go. And that's like the surrender to the reality of the moment as it is. And just the most natural thing in the world. You just breathe and let that sigh come out really loud. Okay, so do it together. First of all, we're going to really inhale it and really hold it. Look at this. Ah. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs>